Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the fourth day of November. I'm your host, Paul White. Thanks for joining me today. It is Friday, and as I've been telling you all week long, it is Long Form Friday. This is where we take a different kind of um, subject, sometimes a sermon, sometimes a, a Q&A at a conference. Um, I've even done Zoom calls with other preachers or authors uh, we've done. We've had streaks in the past where we had so many long-form Fridays, we did it every Friday. That hasn't been the case of late. But I did want to throw one at you today because I was recently in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, visiting family. My parents still live in Poplar Bluff. My wife's mom and sisters live in Ellington. It's about an hour from Poplar Bluff. So when we go back to Southeast Missouri, it's a time to catch up with family. And I have a lot of friends there. We have a lot of people who were part of our church and our ministry. And so I preached for my dad at the Southside Church in Poplar Bluff on the Sunday that um, that we were in town. This was in mid-October. And he asked if I would want to do a sit-down interview. We've done this in the past. I've gotten good feedback from these. People seem to like to hear my dad and I converse on things. And so we did. And I don't have the best equipment to do this The two on the road like that. So we used a studio mic and we used a lapel mic. And so my dad is sitting in front of the studio mic. I am wearing the lapel mic. I edited it to where the lapel mic volume is up to where the studio mic volume is, but I couldn't uh, do a perfect sync. So what we do is if I'm talking, we switch over to just the lapel mic. And when he's talking, We switch over to just the studio mic. That also helped us control ambient sound a little bit. There are some moments when we try to talk at the same time as you get to do in a conversation. And I didn't want to just jump back and forth between mics. And so sometimes you'll hear the other person for just a second or two in the background. But if one speaker is talking an extended spell, I move to their microphone. I think it worked pretty well. You do get a really good clarity out of both speakers um, especially when we're just one of us speaking. I let dad control this. It was it was uh, kind of his thing, and I let him sort of ask the questions and um, do what he wanted to do. So he does his own kind of an intro and an exit. And so we're just going to jump right into it. I hope you enjoy it. Um, and we will. I just want to let you know as well that we will be back tomorrow on the 5th of November with our look at the Apostles' Creed and the line, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll also introduce you to the sermon to watch for on Sunday, and then we'll just keep working on the creed all of next week. From October 2022, here is my set down with my dad, Rick White. Well, first of all, I just want to say greetings in the name of the Lord to all of your audience. Thank you for giving me the chance to speak a little bit. I can imagine old radio days now, having this mic sitting in front of me, and uh, You and I have done this before, and it's always a pleasure and a joy. And yeah, I've had a few things on my mind. You talk about us talking just again, and uh, we talk about the church and and where it's at and stuff like that. And I've heard you comment, the pastors saying some of the stuff about the church and where it's at. I'd just like to say I appreciate the Lord's grace and mercy for me being in the place where I'm at here in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. At the South Poplar Bluff General Baptist Church, they've been wonderful. It's uh, they I can preach the message of grace, and then this weekend, of course, 
we have you you here doing a a grace encounter, and I've led up to this point in time for tomorrow's services of this uh, preaching grace. And I'm so excited about what you're going to do. But I just want to kind of get your thoughts about where you think the church is going. I just got a few things I just wanted to say about the church. I've seen it begin to kind of turn around a little bit. Um, Maybe some of the guys out there like me, I like to go to the coffee shop in the morning and talk to guys. And I kind of get a little heartbeat of what people are thinking about going to church and what their thoughts are about things. And I'm finding... Paul, that uh, a lot of people just don't even want to go to church anymore. They've been, I don't know if they've been hurt, what's happened, but some people uh, don't want to go, but I'm seeing people begin to turn a little bit. Do you think maybe uh, the church is doing the right thing now? I think we were too hard, we were too harsh, we preached too hard, we always reminded people what they needed to do. And what they need to get on this altar and get things straightened up. And uh, there's things going on different now. I see some some grace being preached. And mm-hmm. what, so. what are you feeling I out did. there? I, I hope that we've made a theological shift in the church that that will that at the end of the day will mark a a, a gospel of peace that stops putting people under shame and guilt constantly. I think a lot of people, to your point, I think a lot of people have left the church because they have a form of sort of religious PTSD. They've been shelled enough, and no one wants to live in a foxhole forever, and that's kind of how they felt. They go to church and just hunker down, take a beating, and, and you can only live that way for so long before it affects the rest of your life. So I do think there's some of that, and... And I hope that we are turning the corner. I think grace, in fact, I had, a, I had a pastor say to me recently that he said, I think that grace has infiltrated most of the church, whether they like it or not. And I, I thought that was an interesting statement because I, I think he's right. I think that most churches have had to at least deal with the real wave of, of grace that has struck the world in this last few decades. That doesn't mean that that we're all on the same page, but I think that the church as a whole has had to address this issue of our gospel, our message, and change it. But I think the big thing was COVID. I mean, I think from a practical standpoint, I think I saw a statistic the other day that the national church attendance is still down 30%. In other words, Three out of every ten people that were going to church regularly before COVID aren't going post-COVID. So the the question then is why, and that I don't think has anything to do or not much to do with religious PTSD. I mean, so why are they not coming back? And I I think it, part of it could be that we've entered a time when it's never been better to be an individual. I mean, what I mean by that is you get to, you can pretty much live your life in your house now. You know, you can work from home, order food from home, stream everything from home. You don't even have to go to the movies to watch the movie. The, I mean, the movie that's on at the theater is available on your 75 inch 4K TV. You know, it's never been better to be an individual. And because of that, people have, there's, I think there's a group, a lot of us have sort of, internalized 
and thought, I don't know that I need anybody. And I think there's some fear still, too. There's people that are afraid that they're going to get sick or they're going to get COVID or whatever. And so they do try to stay away from people. But I think we've entered the era of the individual to the point that the church is going to have to rebrand the importance of community and why it matters. And it can't just be us pastors saying to our congregations, hey, this place matters. You need to get in here and support it. That's not enough. It's not enough to yell at people, this place matters. We have to have actual value in community. Otherwise, it's a facade. And they know they're being lied to. They know they're being tricked to support another ministry. It's like, oh, you just want me here because you need my money. There has to be a provision for community that's essential. And so I think this is great, but it's going to be a slow turn because there's going to have to be a return in one way or the other to when I go into community, I feel as if the community is bettered because I'm there and they're lesser if I'm not. And if we, I think we've created worship environments that are so individualistic that people don't feel as if the place, it matters if they don't show up. And until we matter when we show up, there's, a, there's always going to be a portion of people that feel like showing up is not that valuable. Well, it's, it's strange that you said that because just recently um, I was talking to a man and his, his wife doesn't go to church with him much, but I said, well, you know, I like going to church. He said, well, that's I do too. He said, even though, you know, she doesn't go very often. Yeah. I said, well, my wife and I love going to church and we love community. And I said, this is something I think a lot of people have missed in the church, that it's a community. We have a young lady that used to come to, to Midland that comes here now. She walked in this church one Sunday morning. She was so delighted to come here. She told me, said, this is like going home to a reunion. And she's been here ever since. She comes a lot of the time. She comes when she's, he's not working or when maybe they're out of town on vacation or something. Point being. It's a family. Uh, I enjoy coming. It's a family. It's not like we're coming to to have to work. So what I want to do is kind of look at that at this way because I've been uh, I've been and so have you been in churches where people said I, if you mention doing anything like work, it's like you've said a bad word. So <clears throat> if we want anything. We've, we've talked about this some, but I just want to talk about it again. If we want something, though, we're going to have to work for it. For instance, if you want something to happen in your church, not working to get your salvation. Understand, you've got your salvation. It's there. Yeah. But if we work toward what we want to do in our church, can't we get that message across to the people? If you love this place, let people know. If you feel like this place is a place like family, let people you know know that. There's going to be some people come in, and it's not going to be for them. They don't want that. They want you to beat them up when you they come in. That way they feel better about themselves. There's some people, they want to be loved. Mm-hmm. I don't care what color they are, whether they've been in life, what style of worship they've even had. They want to come into a place where they actually feel like that they're part of it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. But to get there, 
Let's talk about that type of work we need to do. It's kind of like our own personal life each day. If I want to quit doing something in my life, I've got to set it in my mind. I'm going to quit doing this. If I'm overeating, I'm going to have to put it in my mind first that I want to quit doing this. And I think in our churches, if we want our churches to, I want to say grow, but I think it's more than just grow. I think it's being a part of something. We want to be healthy. I think if we want our church to be healthy to the place that it matters and the people that walk through the door, we're going to have to work at that. Yeah, I think part of it is that we've, you know, we've made works a bad word in a lot of grace communities. You say the word works or you say to people they ought to or they need to. And they, they bristle against that because I think for so long, works, need tos, and ought tos were associated with going to heaven. They were associated with being righteous. They were associated with being favored. So we, we were in environments where you'd say things like, you need to do this to please God, or you need to do this because you want to go to heaven when you die, or you don't want to go to hell, or whatever. And you say that enough, and you do that enough, you build that as the underpinning for your quote-unquote gospel, and and people have a hard time falling into a relationship with God, with a loving father, because they're always trying to please a taskmaster. So what we've tried to do is relieve them from that, get that off their backs, know that you're a son, that you're a daughter, that you are loved, that you are righteous, that you are favored. None of those things are affected by your works. I think in trying to swing that pendulum, we swung it so hard towards works are bad Works are not, works can't get you saved, and so therefore works are bad. And we, maybe it's going to take a swinging the pendulum back, or it's just going to take us focusing ourselves again on the fact that we, according to Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith, but, and we know that's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. But if we keep reading, we find out that we are His workmanship created unto good works. And so it's not by works that I'm saved. It's created for works that I'm saved. And there needs to be a revival of preaching. What comes out of those who believe on Christ and why is it valuable in the world? And as we start to live that out, the works that come out of us because we are saved, uh, I think we'll start to see value in the local church because it starts to serve a purpose in people's lives and their families and their homes and their relationships with the Lord. Part of that work, to me, is needs to then be translated over into, if I want a church that matters and I want a healthy church, what am I going to do to make that church healthy? And, and it can't be, I am going to do nothing because it's the Holy Spirit's job to do it all. Not That's not the Holy Spirit's job. If community matters to you, if it matters to have a relationship, you got to go on the date. If it matters to have a kid, you got to raise them. If it, you, you can't get around relational familial love requires self-sacrifice. When I married my wife, I gave up single Paul. When I had my son, I gave up non-parental Paul. When I had my daughter, I gave up one parent Paul. Every move you make gives up who you were. And you never get them back, not really, not as long as that thing is in the world that matters. And so I went from single Paul to married Paul to parent Paul to two-parent Paul. And then there's a season of now one kid left in the house, almost empty nester Paul and Natasha. The point being, 
I've had, you have to surrender where you were to be what you are, but in every step you take, there's a new set of works that goes with maintaining that version of yourself because I can't be the Paul when I have a kid that I was without a kid, not if I care about that kid. And I can't be the Paul when I have two kids that I was when I had one kid, not if I care about that second kid. And I can't be the Paul I need to be to my wife when my kids move out, not if I care about my wife. Everything's a season. So whatever matters to you is going to require something of you. It's going to require, like your, to your example, if I, if I know I need to lose weight, it's going to require that I pay attention to what I take in and I pay attention to what I burn. And if I don't want to pay attention to it, then I probably don't want the results of what it would take to pay attention to it. I can ask for his help. I can believe for faith, for, for favor to say, to say no to this food or in the parental illustration, ask the wisdom of the father on how to raise my kids or whatever. But I, I still have to do it. In the church, what you want isn't going to happen without, what, without the effort it takes put into it. So if I want a community of believers, I'm going to have to be a community of believer. I'm going to have to insert myself into community. Well, uh, in saying that, I, as a pastor for, I've been a minister 51 years, started pastoring at 17 and pastored several churches throughout Arkansas, Missouri. Now, in, a, in the pastor, forever pastor listening, um, the, this conversation I know has had to see something to strike up an interest. But as a pastor, now let's put it down to the church. As a pastor, while I'm up here preaching, there were some things I want to see um, <clears throat> from the church here. And I want to be able to articulate the message that if we want this place, and this is a congregation, they've many of them have been here most of their life, and some of them have come since I've been here, or, so we've got a varied congregation. They would love to see this place what it used to be. Now, we, we know that that's not going to happen because none of us are, are that age anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the thing. A lot of people say, well, I've already done all that. I'm tired. I don't want to do any more now. Okay, that gets down to where I'm sure a lot of people are out there like me that we've done this our whole life. But when you get a person excited about what they're doing and the place they're at, it begins to turn something inside of them about the church and the family. So let me go back to where I started out with these. some guys I see at the coffee shop in the morning. And and it's took probably two or three years for me to, to see an interest in some people. I'm hoping this weekend to see some people here that I've been talking to and working and telling them just little by little, taking this thing as a big elephant, taking a bite at a time. And I'm hoping to see them here because not only do I believe in the message that we're preaching here, but I especially believe in what God is doing through you in this grace encounter that I believe the, the, the message that I've been building up to, that it, you come in and you're just going to add to everything for the people I've been working on to, to get them excited about church again. I'm hoping to see that happen. But when all that crowd leaves, I'm still going to be here with my group. So for me as a pastor, I'm going to continue to enforce, not enforce, uh, encourage my people to, if you want something, 
we're going to have to work for it. Yeah. But your work, don't don't misunderstand it for your salvation. It's not for your salvation. Where do you want this place to go? It, that will be up to us to work. And to get that. Yeah, and I think we have to parse the difference between a healthy church and what we consider a quote-unquote growing church. Right. Because we've right. been in cult, in, in really indoctrinated in a lot of respects in the Western church that growth is good, that not growing is not good. And by growth, I mean numbers and money, the two things by which we associate success in America. How big is it and how wealthy is it? And that metric has caused a undue stress on the church because if that's the metric by which we grow, it is not quantifiable how much the people are growing. All that is quantifiable is how much our bank account is growing and how big our building is. You could get to that without spiritual health. You know, you could have enough programs, enough stuff. So we can't have as our end goal, I don't think, if we want a healthy place, we can't have as our end goal X amount of dollars, this many people. I'm not in any way indicating that you can't have a healthy church that's wealthy and a healthy church that's large. I don't, I don't think anybody would argue that. But I think we all know at an inherent level, at this elemental level, that big is not necessarily better and little is not necessarily better or vice versa. Right, right, right. And so being little doesn't mean my church is healthy because we're all small and we Good. know each other. And being big doesn't mean my church is unhealthy because we're, we're, we don't all know each other. Yeah. However, the transverse is equally true. Um, being big doesn't mean I'm healthy slash unhealthy. Being little doesn't mean. So it's not a matter of size and money. Um, in fact, I've seen churches that have a lot of money that I don't think do much good health-wise for the individual. And, I've, and, and I think we've all seen it the other way as well. We need to remember that Jesus said he's going to build his church. And this is, an in, this is uh, a, a, a fixed position for the Holy Spirit. I build the church. You are the church. I'm building you. Christ said, on this rock, I build my church. So I'm not in the church building business. Neither are you. Even if, and, and to any pastor listening, any church leader, even if you think you're in the church building business, you're not. Not according to Jesus. You're in the shepherding business. You shepherd sheep that walk through the door. You love them. You hold them. You use the rod and the staff to keep the wolf off their back. And you protect them. And you give them green grass and still waters to the best of your ability. And you don't exploit them. And when Jesus was asking Peter, do you love me? The, the test of whether or not Peter loved Jesus, Jesus said, if you love me, feed my sheep. He didn't say, if you love me, build my church, because he had already told him, I'm going to do that. So here you got two points Jesus makes. One, I'll build my church. Two, you feed them when I bring them to you. So what is in front of you is what you feed. Now, how healthy are we as a local church often depends on a number of factors of which I don't think size and money are that important in regards to whether we're healthy or not. But 
and I don't, I'm not going to sit here and claim to, to give you a list of things that mean a, a place is healthy, but it seems to me that the Holy Spirit is in charge of actually building the body of Christ, and we are in charge of loving the body of Christ. And if people aren't being loved and served, to me, that would be the first marks of an unhealthy place. Well, um, and if you want that, then do that. If you want a place that is healthy, then serve. Serve the people that you encounter by loving them, by being there for them, by giving yourself freely to them. And that will be a place that people want to be, not because it's large or small, not because it's rich or poor, but because they find value in being loved by God's people. And they find value in having the opportunity to love God's people. And in reality, and I know we like to say, well, what the church is really supposed to be doing is winning the lost. No, actually what you're supposed to be doing is winning the lost. Yes. And we've given that job over to the pastor. And the evangelist. And the evangelist. And what we're really out here doing is we are living Christ in front of our neighbor in a way that we love them. And we hope that that inspires, I think, we hope that that inspires them to, to want to love their neighbor. And we believe that a resurrected Christ is the answer to the life of God on the earth. And so we share that with our neighbor. Paul said it well then, since, um, you know, he said one place we are the body, Christ is the head. And the body, he showed us the representation of each part of the body and its place and position. It kind of gives us a picture of, then if we're the body, Jesus is the head, Holy Spirit is the one directing all this. Maybe we need to realize the thing that we are doing through our own, through Holy Spirit's direction in us, hands, feet, eyes, legs, however, that we become that worldwide as a body, and we're moving toward whatever Holy Spirit's doing through us, to direction from the head, to us, through us, and not only our local church, but worldwide, just like you're doing on an international version, I'm doing in a local version here, and many other pastors listening, uh, many evangelists traveling all over. Maybe we need to let un- understand a little more about that we are the, his hands and feet. Is God going to just do something without us doing it, as as we would say, it's God is so sovereign. Is he going to make me do something I don't want to do since he's sovereign? And if I'm not going to fill in the area that um, that's not being filled in, if I'm just going to be lazy about it, so to speak, is he just going to make me? Because he's sovereign. He's always God. Uh, so yeah. let's talk. Well, you know, I think we, we could consider the fact that the body of Christ is is built by Jesus, washed off by Jesus. He has received to himself a glorious church without spot and wrinkle. This isn't something he's going to do when he returns. This is who we are. And the, the, the church at large is his body. She is clean. She is pure. Yes. She yes. is the chaste virgin presented to Christ. The expressions of the body of the local church the, those expressions are not, all, not always healthy. Those expressions are not always conducive to people loving their neighbor. Those expressions are oftentimes uh, clouded, and sometimes they're confusing. Um, the, and those expressions of the body in the local church are often reflections of denominational style, worship style, cultural style, leadership style, and it's why you walk into a church and it doesn't, it's not your quote unquote cup of tea because it isn't your expression. It's, and that's okay. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's, it's absolutely okay because 
What we are are collections of believers who are we are we are tending towards our flock. Is it like you got to find that place? I think you do. I mean, you're you're in a flock of sheep, but not every sheep is with every flock. You know, Jesus even said, I have sheep that's not of this fold. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I know in the theological sense, he's probably talking about the Gentiles being brought in Jewish. But I think in a practical sense, he's saying what he said to the disciples in another spot, which was, you know, the disciples once rebuked the man for right. casting out devils in Jesus' name. He said, you, we, we rebuked him, Lord, because he's not with us. And Jesus said, if he's not against me he's for me and so it was as if jesus was saying look we're not the only tribe guys we're not the only flock we're an expression of the father's flock but we're not it i think if every church could realize that we're just an expression of the people in this room and the people in this building but even that we have to be on guard that when someone comes into that flock we I think it's important that we realize that people are searching. And sometimes we do have to sort of expand the borders of our flock to let people into that circle that might not look like us, act like us, or sound like us. But if there's something there of value for them, we, we embrace what walks into that flock. And so, um, because I think if you take this too far... You'll have a people that say, well, we do things the way we do it here. If you don't like it, you can leave. And I think what ends up happening... That's a little cold and cruel. Well, it is, and, but, and I'm probably making... But yet it's a, it's, it's a valid thing. I know, and I'm probably using an extreme example, but I just can only say what I've seen because there's right. people that right. will look at it and go, well, I just think the way we do things here, you need to go somewhere else. And, go, well, and I get that yeah. to a certain extent. But I think we just need to realize that each church is an expression of the community, the culture... The, the way they worship. And our job then is not to have this homogenous church globally where every service is exactly the same, everyone sings exactly the same, everyone preaches exactly. That's boring. I mean, if there's multicolored right, right. grace, then there must be multicolored worship yeah, services. Yeah. Um, so find your tribe, so to speak. I've got a preacher friend that uses that phrase, yeah. so I'll borrow yeah. it. Find your tribe, your people that yeah. that mean that 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 bring you peace and go there and yeah. and when you're there then contribute to and it. Don't worry about what's over the door. If there's something yeah. feeding you there. Yeah. Oh, I I I'm. Uh, there's been a real trend change in me, particularly since having left the Sunday to Sunday traditional church pastorate. I've gained such an appreciation for the broader church around the world and. High church, low church, Western church, Eastern church, whatever. And that appreciation has been that I see value in the way people worship God that doesn't look anything like I do. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. Whereas there was a time I thought there was supposed to be some sort of homogeny in Christianity. We all end up looking like the same and dressing the same and singing this because it's like, well, I think I got a sermon coming up that I'm posting soon that says this is like I had this idea when I was younger that there's one Jesus. So if we all ended up following the spirit to the one Jesus, we'd all end up being alike. Yeah, we'd think the same, like the same kind of music. We'd end up dressing the same. And that and that and of course I had it right. And so it was just a matter of getting all these other churches to realize that I was right. How'd that go? Yeah, that goes as good as you think it will. Um, (laughs) 
And and I think that there's still a little bit of that in a lot of us because yeah. we kind of think, well, we're kind of doing it right here, you know. This is the way it should be done. And I don't, you know, I don't think that's the case. I don't think the father looks down at his, the expressions of his church and goes, oh, I hate that. That's and one guy's got it right over. I'm yeah, they got it right down there at that church. Um, because what's getting it right? I mean, at the end of the day. As far as I'm concerned, my, my own personal life of study in the Old and the New Testament is getting it right is loving your neighbor. I, I just don't see any way around it. If, I mean, Jesus was so big on this, it was all he talked about. I mean, it's almost all he talked about was loving the marginalized and the neighbor. And he even goes out of his way to go meet people that no one wants to meet. Well, what do you think, John, for? Go to the woman at the well. He must needs go to Samaria. There's no reason to go sit on a well, talk to a woman, right. divorce five times. He don't get anything out of it. it, it but he's... He sure gave us a great story. Well, and he's, you know, he's, he's making these encounters throughout the Gospels. There's something about him. Yeah. And so to me, it's, it, that is it. That's why Paul says in Romans, what is it, Romans 13, 14, where he says... The you know loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. To to actually fulfill the law is to love your neighbor. So I think that the purpose of the church on the earth is to love people, and and so I think that will get us out of the tribalism because that's the only way reason I don't like that word tribe. Find your tribe because tribes end up having tribalism. Our tribe's better than your tribe. Mm-hmm. You can get away from tribalism if you loved your neighbor. Yeah. Because if they walk through the door, you're supposed to love them. And then they become a part of you as long as they want to be. And um, so I think those expressions of the faith in the local church are valuable. And if you want it to stay there, contribute to it. Yeah. Contribute your time, your effort, your money, as led by the Spirit. That's important. And if it matters, contribute. Because I can tell you this, if it doesn't matter, you won't contribute, and it will go away. Not the, the body of Christ won't go no, away. No, yeah. the, the expression of Christ in your local church might go away. And it very well might. That's not a threat. That's just reality. Sure. Sure. It might go away. And you know what? In some cases, it might need to. I mean, I, I mean there may be some congregations that's actually dying. I yeah. Mean, I'm talking about thirds. Yes. And, and to your point earlier, you talk about maybe if you've got an older congregation and people go, well, we don't want to do anything anymore. I get that because a lot of people did it all. They worked and they're just tired. But I would say this. If, if it matters to you to leave something behind for your kids and your grandkids in your 401k and your house and your checking and man, that's like the mark in America, you know, of success is I left this for my kids. Okay, great. Why wouldn't you do the same thing for your community with your church? I mean, if you care about what you did there for 60 Make years, why it. wouldn't you say, I'm going to go out leaving something for the next generation. I'm not just going to ride this out until I'm dead. I'm going to go out believing that I contributed to another generation, enjoying the thing that made the most sense to me. I loved my church. I loved my community of believers. I loved what we represented. I'm not asking it to stay the same way forever, but I hope it gets to be there forever. So I'm going to contribute on my way out the door. And maybe that means your finances. Maybe that means your prayer group. Maybe that means 
knocking on a door. I don't know. You got to listen to the spirit. But I don't. I don't think any of us serve our local church well by just writing it out. Oh, I don't either. And just go. But and and then calling it grace. But a church actually does need a minister, a pastor, someone that can at least impart life back into something that they almost felt like that it was gone for them. Yeah. This is there's a great importance to that. You know, here I am. I'm 67 year old, and I've been put in a place here where, you know, I know I've, there's a lot of people that I've pastored, but in this phase of my life, I'm really, really thankful to be here. Yeah. They've put something into me, and I hope I have to them. And it's a beautiful thing for me. And um, so I see the relationship between pastors and churches how important that is because sometimes it doesn't always work. I mean, it's almost like two heads butting together sometimes when a man goes into a church. I've been there. But what's really great is when you come into place, you feel that you're not just tolerated, but you're actually celebrated Mm -hmm. in their midst, and you celebrate them because of what you feel. I I hope that for every person. Absolutely. Um, I would like to just, I, I said a while ago about the sovereignty of God. There's one more thing as a pastor that I deal with quite often, and I'm sure there's other pastors out there, because someone will lose a loved one, they will have something happen to them, and it will almost automatically people will say, well, God must have done this to get my attention. Mm. I don't really, I believe in free will. I believe that God gave us free will, and when he done that, I believe he gave us the earth for us to take care of it, and if we mess the earth up, we're going to be the ones to suffer the consequences. He said, why didn't God do something? Because he already gave us the earth. Okay. In that same sense, our lives, we go through life, things happen, accidents happen. In our community, we lost one of our assistant pastors in a local church mm-hmm. from a horrible accident here this week or, you know, last week. And... Of course, the community always feels. And the same thing happened to a young youth pastor just a few months back. People say, why did God do this? Well, life is life and things happen. Okay, I'd like to talk about that a little bit in the sense of we're not, what is he called, amatrons that God just, or whatever it's called, that he just kind of pokes us around and, you know, we just, uh, that's not the way we are. We are we've been given life. Things happen in life. Is God in control of everything that's going on in your life, according to some people, even if it's an accident and someone is killed, that God done this for a purpose? I can't see that I believe it that way. I believe God is sovereign, for sure. Oh, I don't believe that God... And let me just start by saying, who am I? I'm speaking for. I'm speaking on behalf of what I believe of God. So I, I say that with much trepidation yeah, and awe. Well, I, you know, and that's fair. But I just I wanted to make disclose that I think people speak for God a lot of times, and they just blatantly just throw out, "Here's what God thinks." Um, and I wouldn't do that, but I don't see it in the character of Jesus. And my mark of whether or not it is the Father is to look at Jesus. Because Jesus said, show, Jesus claimed, now he's either crazy or you believe him as your Lord and Savior. So I say to people, if you think he's crazy, then you can say whatever you want about God. Because you don't have a real clear picture of what he would look like if he were a man. But if you think Jesus was not crazy, then you have a clear picture of what God would look like as a man. So take it serious. If you're going to follow Jesus, take it serious. 
Otherwise, don't follow him because he's a nut job. And I, to me, that's the core of the faith, that and the resurrection. Jesus resurrected. If you buy that, then you got to buy the Jesus that lived. If you buy the Jesus that lived, he said, this is what dad looks like. Okay, so stop interpreting all other scriptures without Jesus. Otherwise, don't call yourself a Jesus follower. So if God looks like Jesus, did Jesus kill anyone? Did Jesus strike back? Did Jesus give sickness? Did Jesus make a leper? And Jesus becomes your image of the the Father. And tragedy happened to Jesus. He lost loved ones. He was betrayed. But he never blamed the Father. He was denied. He was never looked at his Father and said, why did you do this to me? Mm -hmm. And to me, as you watch Jesus, you get the... You get the image of the Father lived out in Christ that shows you that bad things happen to good people and they don't happen because God did them, but you are never abandoned in the middle of your darkness. And on the cross, as Jesus dies in the dark, Psalm 22 says that the Father is there in the dark with him on that cross. And that shows me that at the lowest point of your life, when people die, when they have bad diagnoses, when there's bankruptcies, when there's divorce, when there's abuse, when there's molestation, when there's rape, the most horrendous things that you can possibly come up with that are not the responsibility of your father but they are happening to your Father while they are happening to you. That's Jesus on the cross. That is Christ facing all hell because you're going to face all hell. And so whenever tragedy strikes, the last thing we should do is blame the Father. The first thing we should do is realize that the Father hurts where we hurt, is in anguish where we are in anguish, And the cross is proof that even if it kills us, the resurrection is coming. So that every one of us can face every tragedy knowing the sun comes up tomorrow. The resurrection is our hope that our loss and our heartache and our molestation and our pain and our murder is not the end. That God works in the middle of our hell that he didn't make it happen. See, we have this, there is a bit of a mistaken theology, I think, in penal substitutionary atonement theory. It's a theory I don't adhere to anymore, and I did for a while, but I don't think that God put Jesus on the cross and punished him in my place. The Romans put Jesus on the cross, and Jesus goes to the cross to die because all of us are going to die. And death was the one thing God had never experienced in the human family. God had not died as a man. So Jesus tastes death for all of us so that he can show us that death is not the end, that there is tomorrow. In doing that, he shows us that in all of our misery, there is a tomorrow. So I say to people, yes, God is walking with you through your tragedy, but God did not bring you your tragedy. 
The world brought you your tragedy. Maybe the enemy brought you your tragedy. Maybe your own circumstances brought you your tragedy. Maybe your own foolishness brought you your tragedy. Maybe you were a good person in the wrong place at the wrong time and you walked into tragedy. But I can tell you that because you see it in Jesus, you can know that God works in your tragedy. How did Paul see that? Paul saw it as God works all things to our good. That was Paul's final answer. He goes, look, God makes it work. Paul doesn't accuse God. Paul doesn't put God on the hook. But he says God makes it work. He works this stuff for our good. He makes it to where we come out having learned something. And I do think that the coldest and most heartless thing we can say to someone in tragedy is, oh, well, God's going to work it for your good. Because no one wants to hear that when they're going through hell. So, it's, so save it. It's almost like save thoughts and prayers sometimes. You know, um, thoughts and prayers are with you when they needed something else. You know, maybe give them something else. But the point there is that sometimes the very thing that is happening is the last thing we want to talk about when we're going through it. And that's okay. We have to learn that. But God does work in the midst of our tragedy. But I will not accuse God. Right. I will not accuse God of giving a kid cancer. I will not accuse God of killing someone. Jesus didn't either. Remember, Jesus didn't either. Remember the, I think it's in the book of Luke, where there was a... The tower. That, yeah, the tower that fell. And, and Jesus says, I guess you suppose they were greater sinners because they died. It was his way of saying, your natural tendency is to think that my dad knocked that tower over. That's what come to mind. Yeah. And we know, and Jesus, of course, makes it clear there that, look, you're all sinners. Because so, if, in other words, what Jesus is saying is, if towers fall on sinners, get ready. Things happen. Towers are going to fall on you. In other words, my dad didn't push that tower over. Because if you pushed it over on them, why ain't he pushing it over on you, you bunch of sinners? That's Jesus' statement. So don't attribute to my father those disasters. Because if it happened to them, who are you? you well, know? Don't you think we could say then, since you mentioned Paul, then that takes me to the. The next thought I had, and I hope I'm not going too long here. I didn't even look at the clock. You want? Um, <laughs> well, that brings me to the next thought about prayer. Yeah. The prayer. If we don't pray, I don't know if that sounds right or not. But when we, when we don't pray, I think James might have mentioned something about we pray sometimes and we pray amiss and we consume things upon our own lust, and so our prayers are not answered. But Let's turn it around to look like if, if we prayed at the times that we really mean something in our prayers about something that has happened, a lost loved one or a disaster that's happened. In prayer, are we the individuals that in prayer that is causing God to actually move upon man's existence in our prayer? Whereas if we just don't really always say his prayers and thoughts, thoughts and prayers, mm -hmm. if that's all we're going to say to someone and then do nothing about prayer for that, does that somehow or another just keep anything from actually happening? I mean, if man is in free will and God is sovereign, but God doesn't move on every area, is prayer our avenue to get God to move in areas? Would he move without our prayers? Yeah. Well, I don't think, I don't believe in a non-interventionist God. I, I personally don't know why you would have faith in a God that didn't show up and do stuff. You know, if God's the odious clockmaker, 
which is what our founding fathers believed in America. That, that, that was big in the Enlightenment. God winded the clock and then set it and watches it tick. Okay. And that was their idea. That's the deist idea of God. He's God, and they called him Providence. You know, and, and Providence makes the clock, and then he just gets his hands off, and he watches if we're going to destroy the world. If you believed in that God, and this is why you don't see expressions of, of you know, faith in Christ or whatever in our documents in the founding era, they, they weren't, well, they weren't building a government on that. But at the same time, there was a, a very heavy deist tilt in that era of, you know, God exists, but he's, he's left it to our devices. And I do think in some ways there's utility in that because what that does do is make you responsible for your world and your government and the climate and your street, because you're not sitting at home going, well, God will fix it. You've got to fix it. And so there is utility in that, but the idea that God cannot be moved or does not intervene, to me, it would not be a God worth your worship. Because if he's, if he's lofty and at a distance, who cares if you worship him? It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen one way or the other. You know, he, it's all your devices. So I do believe in an interventionist God. But I, do, but I think that prayer is spiritual formation. And my, I think our example is Jesus. Again, you go back to Christ, because why does Christ even need to pray? You know, I mean, he's, he's the son of God. Who cared? Why pray? But he prayed constantly. Yeah. And so he's not trying to get God to do stuff. He's being formed, made into the fashion of what he's supposed to be. He's learning obedience, the obedience of the cross. Jesus is in spiritual school. He's always being spiritually formed to be the man that God wants him to be on the earth. And that is prayer. And that's, it stunned his disciples. They had never prayed that way because our tendency is not to pray that way. Our tendency is to pray, God, do this, God, do that, God, do this, God, do that. And they watch Jesus pray, and he doesn't pray that way. And so they go, they don't say, teach us to walk on the water, teach us to multiply breads and fishes, teach us to heal the sick. They say, teach us to pray. And so Jesus gives, of course, the Lord's Prayer, which we don't believe is the only prayer Jesus prayed, but you watch Jesus in that prayer give honor to his Father, but you watch his own spiritual formation it's, it's not about moving God to do, it's moving me. And this is why I think this is in this season of my life, I've started praying non-Paul White prayers more and more, whether it's praying the Apostles' Creed, praying the Lord's Prayer. I've even bought a couple of prayer books this year for the first time in my life to pray other prayers so that I don't get stuck in my own head. Yeah. Because sometimes we get stuck in our own head. We pray the same circle of prayers over and over again. And I need sometimes to hear. It's why I've been opening the book of Psalms and just reading it out loud as a prayer. Yeah. Because someone else cried in a way I don't know how to cry. Someone else framed God in a way I don't know how to frame. And if I can get outside of my head and pray those prayers, I might see that there's an area of spiritual formation I didn't think about praying in me. There's an area that I didn't bring to him. And so as we move into spiritual formation, I think that we start to have the wisdom of what's happening in situations. We get the wisdom for how to handle it. We get the wisdom for what to do. I don't think that there's anything in the world wrong with petition, with asking God, God, can you intervene? Can you do this? Um, In fact, it's a part of our prayer life. But we don't get to the end of the day, and if God didn't do what we asked, our faith is corrupt, or we don't know how to pray, or we did it wrong. 
Prayer is us being formed into the image of God. And in it, we start to see the hand of God in all of our situations, not causing them, but the hand of God walking us through our situations. And our prayers are not causing God to move, right? Is that what you're saying? But rather- I don't put anything past God. Again, I don't have the right to answer for God as far as, did God move because someone prayed? I will not say God. I mean, right. If, right. if God would move through Paul sweating on a handkerchief in the book of Acts or, you know, crying into a handkerchief and he'd heal him. I'm not going to tell the Holy Spirit what he can and can't do. And I'm not going to tell God, you know, I'm not going to claim to speak for God. But I do believe that that we see Jesus pray not to move the Father, but to move himself into the will of the Father. Trying to get to the Father's mind. Yeah, like for instance, read the 17th chapter of John. This is the most unheralded prayer chapter in the entire Bible. Jesus prays an entire chapter's worth in John 17. If you really want to know how to pray, read John 17. Jesus prays for himself, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for you. And it's spectacular. And in all of it, he's not twisting God's arm. He does make petitions known. But there's a a certain level of formation in how he prays for himself, where he wants God to line him up, how he wants God to align his disciples, and how he hopes God will align the world to come. And it's all formation. It's all forming us into your image. Restore unto me the glory that we had before the world began. And there's, this, there's always us being brought into alignment with who he is. And I think we would find more peace in prayer if we prayed that way. And sometimes you just got to cry. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes you got to whine. And sometimes, and I know this offends some people, but sometimes you just cuss God out a little bit. Well, and I only say that because <laughs> I say that because forty percent of the Book of Psalms is lament. That recently, that was only recently brought to my attention through study, and I thought if four out of ten of the Psalms are lament, this is this is prayer from pain, yeah, and anger, and heartbreak, yeah, and that means and God left them in there. They're in the prayer book of Israel. It means that God's okay with me going to him and saying, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell you what I think. And God says, let's go. We're not in a fight. I think, I think God yeah. will do that. Yeah, we're not in a fight, but bring it. Tell him what bring me the truth. Bring me how you feel about me. Yeah, I, I will not get my feelings hurt. Yeah. And, and if need be, I even think, and some can't stomach this, but I think if you need to hear it, God will tell you he's sorry. Well, I have. No I really do. That, yeah. If you need to hear it, I think God will say, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's how you feel about me. I'm sorry that I that that's the impression you've gotten of me." I think I've heard the Holy Spirit say that. I think that's probably pretty healing. I think it, it heals the body well, and soul and mind. I've heard people say this preaching, and I've, I, it sounds real clever, but I think it's so stupid. And I'm sorry using the word stupid about preaching, but I've heard people say, you know, Jesus, Jesus never had to say I'm sorry. And I think, well, then he wasn't human because human beings hurt I, each I, other. I think I've made that statement. Humans hurt each other. Sure they do. And they have to say I'm sorry. This idea that saying you're sorry means you're some failure. No, it means you're human. Well, and you go, well, God's not human. Yes, but yeah, yes, he is. That's Jesus. <laughs> well, we've heard that from higher-ups. I'm not necessarily yeah. in ministry, yeah. but people have said never apologize. 
That was oh that's that's, that's ridiculous. a terrible way to go through life. Sure it is. That's like thinking you got to win everything. You got to win every conversation. You got to win every argument. You got to win every war. You got to win every battle. You got to win every business arrangement. No, you follow Jesus. Right. Sometimes you keep your sword sword sheathed and you lose. Oh, I tell you what, folks. This this is my boy. <laughs> now he is. This has been great for me. I'm. Good. We're sitting here in my office in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and this guy. I mean, this is what we do all the time when we're by ourselves. And I told him the other day. I said we need to probably do something like this again. I said the. Uh, I like to ask him the hard questions. I think I caught him off a of guard a little bit today. But anyway, thank you, Paul, for letting me kind of uh, get in here and do this. I'm, I'm so glad you're going to be at our church this weekend. Can't, he may cut all this out. I don't know. But I'm looking so forward to him being here this weekend. And uh, if, you ever, if you're in this area, come by and see us here at the South Poplar Bluff General Baptist Church on 1030 in the given morning. And we would love to have you here and uh, I'll give this back to the man of the hour, Mr. Paul White. Well, my dad said thank you to me a lot in there. I want to say thank you to my dad. I I love doing these, but I also love the idea of having a, a recorded record of a conversation or two or three or ten or however many we end up doing with my dad. I think that'll be valuable um, for me, for my kids, and for you know future generations of our family, and so I always am so excited to do that, and and I hope that you enjoyed it. I want to take him up also on the invitation. If you are in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, go see him at the Southside Church uh, on Arthur Street. There, they would love to have you, um, and I I couldn't recommend them highly enough to you if you're in the Southeast Missouri, Northeast Arkansas area. Okay, tomorrow on the podcast, we'll tell you all about the Sunday drop that's coming up, audio and video. Uh, And we'll also jump back into the creed to talk about, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the holy. I said we're going to talk about power, but we actually did that yesterday. We're going to talk about the holy aspect of the Holy Spirit tomorrow on the podcast. Have a great Friday. God bless.